0: Welcome to the Education Futures Podcast. I'm John Moravec.
1: And I'm Kelly Moravec. The Finnish approach to education is, again, our focus for this episode, which is part two of a two-part series. Finland has received a lot of attention lately for its top performance in comparative international assessments of its students and its schools.
0: In this series, we ask, what works in the Finnish approach to schooling? What are some of the misconceptions out there? What can we learn from the Finnish approach that can be used elsewhere? And do we need a revolution to create change? Or is there a better way?
1: In the previous episode, we spoke with Posse Salberg, who wrote the book Finish Lessons 2.0, and it was the focus of our last online book discussion as well. Though we covered such topics as special education, the possibility of a shift from teaching to learning, the standards movement, and accountability, the main themes that kept emerging were the ideas of trust and personalized education.
0: Posse hinted that there's a bit of a dark side to finish education, and that not everybody is content. So we reached out to two of our educator friends in Finland who have been working on shaking things up just a little bit.
1: Marko Koskinen established a democratic school in Finland, which ran as a brick-and-mortar type school for three years and now has morphed into more of an online democratic school. He's a leader in critical thinking about Finnish education and most recently organized the International Democratic Education Conference in Mikkeli, Finland.
2: I'd like the trust that uh, the teachers are given in the schools. Uh, the teachers have a huge amount of autonomy. Uh, I've actually worked in, in public schools or the government schools for, uh, well, more than 10 years, doing many kinds of substitute teacher jobs and longer periods. Yeah, I have some kind of idea how it goes. And uh, I especially liked the autonomy parts. Pekka
0: Ihanainen is a retired vocational teacher-trainer from Haga Helia University of Applied Sciences in Helsinki. He's also an educational entrepreneur, having worked to push people to think differently about teaching and learning through thought leadership and professional development.
3: The key uh, differences between Finland and other countries come from, from, from equality and equity. And um, with equality, I, I, I mean that in Finland, all kids and, and youth and uh, even adult uh, adult people um, they have the same opportunities uh, independent from economic or family or culture and uh, other background things so the opportunities to study to to have a place in school uh, it's equal for for everyone when it comes to this this leadership and change I think, I think that uh, teachers have have had quite a lot of power and they can decide uh, the, the, the practical implementation, how do they do it in in, in, in every day and,
0: and uh, on, on a year basis. All right. So for me, my big takeaway from the conversations with Posse um, and from Marco and uh, Pekka is that... Finland has a very different approach or conceptualization of, of trust than what exists around most of the rest of the world. And to me, I think that's the most important takeaway. That's why Finland is unique. It's not about the structure that they have, but really about the, the cultural the elements that really surround it that enable these the, the Finnish approach to education to really flourish.
1: So it seemed like there was sort of a theme between the three of them that this this cultural piece can't be replicated, that the culture of Finland is unique to Finnish people. So the question is, can something similar be replicated in other areas that have different sets of cultural norms? Something Posse Salberg said during his interview for our last podcast was that he could take teachers that were producing really great results with students in Finland and bring them to the United States and they wouldn't be able to do any better than the teachers that we already have in the United States with the the children in those schools. And he mentioned that because it was you know the the difference the uniqueness of the culture in Finland um as opposed to what we have in the United States. So, in thinking about that and on a on a broad scale and more generalized basis, you know, in the United States with all of the differing cultures that we have represented in our schools, if we can't do it countrywide, is it possible to do it districtwide or even within a school? Is there a way to replicate or develop some sort of similar culture or at least a shared culture among all of the people in the school? Um, to be able to replicate something similar to what happens in the Finnish schools.
0: Let me ask Marco. This is what you had to say.
2: Like uh, Many times people want to somehow replicate or uh, use the uh, ideas of Finnish school system. Uh, and uh, usually they end up failing because uh, it's not really about some methods or uh, some gimmicks that you can copy. Uh, it's more about culture. Uh, so if you really want to have a Finnish school, you need to understand the culture and how how the Finnish school system actually became in being. It's it's a history of uh, hundreds hundreds of years. Uh, it's not it's not easy to replicate. But I think if you, if you can manage to understand the the value that we give to uh, equality, uh, children in general, uh, and um, teacher teachers also, uh, then then you can actually start working on the Finnish school system.
0: You know, Kelly, one of the things I really love uh, in working with you is that you bring in perspective of a teacher, and I really am coming from more of a policy background. And so when working or communicating with uh, policy leaders here and also in other countries that are just simply obsessed with Finland, um, like Finland's great. They got to go travel over and learn everything and then bring what they learned over here. And a lot of the conversation really seems to be uh, centered around a sort of a sense of devolution of uh, school policy and school powers and authority uh, down to different levels, but of course, keeping the, the structures that we have in place intact and safe. So it's kind of like devolution in name only. And this sort of, uh, I think, a sense of faux empowerment that we kind of create. I guess my, my thing is that when we're talking about trust, I mean, we actually got to go in and, and create it, that sort of the leading this change or leading this trust can't really occur from the top down. It's it's really just, it really needs to emerge from, from the grassroots level as much uh, as possible.
1: So are you saying that what we need to do is work on developing trust among students and then trust among teachers and then trust between students and teachers and then hoping that that sort of culture and that, that kind of climate, that environment will extend up the hierarchical ladder uh, to eventually reach administrators and then policymakers and things like that?
0: Right. So I guess hoping isn't the the right word, but I think that we might be able to frame this as a theory of action rather than a policy that we implement is that rather than implementing a policy and saying, oh, we're going to trust you and here's our strategy to trust you from the top down, that we're going to do what we can to empower people empower students, empower teachers, and not worry about things as much and see what really emerges and have have trust in the system to create the best possible outcomes.
1: Well, I, I agree. I think that sounds good. But how does that start at the classroom level?
0: I think that starting at the classroom level, that this really refocuses the conversation on creating agency. That's really focused on equity, trust, and rethinking power relationships. And this really gets uh, in the face of the standardized um, approach to learning that we have, you know, the one-size-fits-all modes of education, or at least some one-size-fits-all modes of assessment that we have, and that we need to to trust students to really learn more on an equal peer-to-peer basis and a peer-teacher basis, uh, utilizing technologies as best as we can, but also rethink the power relationships. So the accountability uh, is really within the classroom. It's really among students, between the students and the teacher, rather than, say, from the classroom to authorities somewhere else.
1: So how does developing that culture of trust among and within and between the students and the teachers in a school extend up So that there's a development of that culture of trust between the teachers and their administrators, between the administrators and the policymakers. How does developing that culture of trust within the classroom then expand out so that it's a a well-developed climate of trust for all involved?
0: Right. So I think that we need to take a much more of a community approach towards setting goals and determining where we want to be as communities, who we want to be as communities, where do we want to form, where, we, where do we want to go uh, at that and really refocus the accountability question, the success question based on, on the needs of individual students, but also much more on the community level. That's probably more of a, you know, an opinion and personal spe- perspective, rather than saying having a national or statewide policies to adhere to.
1: Well, I'm not sure that it would ever be successful to have some sort of policy in place that we all trust each other. That
0: doesn't seem reasonable. <laughs> no, 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 no. So, so we're, we're not going to create a policy on trust, but rather it's a cultural thing. And I think that in part of building a culture of trust, I think that we really need to involve the community in a whole lot more. Our schools are really separated from the communities that we serve. We've got cultural walls, we have physical walls, and some of them are for good reasons, but a lot of them, uh, not so much. And I think that we have sort of shared ownership for the conversation about uh, about education, shared conversation about the futures of kids, the futures of schools, where we want to go. I think that we can find ways to connect better, collaborate more, and, and create a sort of a common vision and the trust necessary to to really create outcomes that are beneficial for all of us.
1: So it's really about going back to the beginning and making sure that all stakeholders' voices are at the table. So that includes the kids and the teachers, the administrators, policy members, community members, business leaders, everyone that is a member of any given community and determining what success looks like and then ensuring that everyone has a role that they're capable of within that unit and then trusting one another to implement whatever it is you say you'll do with the ultimate outcome being success for every kid.
0: right. and so the last thing we want is for people to think, oh, you know kids education or performance is somebody else's problem. No, it's a it's a shared problem for all of us and we have to work together and trust each other to uh, create the the best outcomes, the best schools, the best outcomes that we can.
1: Did you just say that a, that that children's education is a problem? No, did I? <laughs> we're not we're suggesting that that someone's education is another person's problem.
0: No, no, but <laughs> it's it's something No, jeez. No, but it's something that we all share. It's a fun part of life that we all share.
1: <laughs> it's an it's an it's an opportunity for <laughs> everyone.
0: Opportunity for everyone. <laughs> That's a conversation. I mean I mean kids are part of our community, our communities too. Kids are people too, we say, right? Mm-hmm. And kids are also part of our communities, and they need to have much more of an equal say, but also responsibilities. And the same also goes with the rest of the community as well. And so it's, um, it's really about integration and um, inclusion at a very fundamental level.
1: Well, and I think also one of the key elements, too, is having some sort of accountability for a group that you're a member of. Kids don't really have much accountability toward other members in their community unless they're a part of some sort of maybe church group or some sort of, you know, a, a group that's outside of, of school. Um, often, at least in, in my experience, the, the only people that kids feel accountable toward are their parents or their immediate family and then one or a handful of teachers at school. And that's it. And I think often kids don't even necessarily feel a sense of accountability toward themselves because they spend a good portion of their lives working to uh, please or or achieve based on someone else's set goals um, or set ideals for them. And so providing them with a space to be accountable toward other people within the community and seeing that those people and others within that group will be accountable to them as well is a really powerful message to send to kids. And I think that is the beginning of developing a shared and mutual trust, um, which is what what we're lacking.
0: Right. And I think that's really reflected in Scandinavian cultures with the, the cultural dimension that, that in imp- I mean, they're highly individualistic, but there is also a collective accountability as well. And I think that's a huge piece that we see in the success in Finnish schools as well.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Let's check with what Pekka has to say about that.
3: When I think uh, in, in Finland, power is used, is connected with the autonomy of, of teachers or, or, or local education uh, providers and that kind of things. So... What i'm trying to say that we have the core curriculum which is for everyone but it is it is sort of a framework but then then city and municipality uh, administrative people and and schools they they can uh, autonomously make more detailed uh, curriculums and then uh, the the single single teachers they have quite a lot of uh, power to decide what to do they do in practice uh, if, if they uh, do it in the in the frame framework of core correction
1: so uh, then that leads us into the perfect conversation about this um, the homework policy that went viral on social media do you remember that
0: oh tell me about it
1: um, so there was a a picture of a note that went home from an elementary teacher's class with with the new homework policy, which basically was um, the only homework that the child will be given uh, would be anything that didn't get finished in the classroom um, as classwork, and then playing and spending time with family and eating dinner together, and, you know, doing those things outside of school that we all know are really important aspects in helping a child grow that started going around on social media right at the beginning of the school year. And there was really a lot of talk about people strongly supporting that idea, but then also people on the other side of it that were not strong supporters um, that believe that homework is a good thing and that students need to be held accountable for their learning. Um, so what are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, where do you stand on it?
1: Well, <laughs> I just talked about it a bunch
0: Homework over the years has changed a lot. You know, a hundred years ago, people were saying, you "Well, know, kids learned a lot in school stuff." Well, actually, what kids did for homework was not nearly as much or as intense as what kids do now. You know, I'm being told to write a paper. Maybe they have to write um, a paragraph, but now they they write by the pages to do work, and so it's changed a lot. I think that. Within schools, I I really like hearing from teachers that there's a real craving to create more social connections, more learning within the families, learning through play and free time, and not just in school. So I really appreciate that recognition that that's emerging. That this is super important.
1: So I have a, a couple of thoughts on this. The the first one um, would be you know within the, with this policy. The, the homework, if there was any assigned homework, it would be classwork that didn't get finished during class. And for me, that is an issue of equity, um, because if we think about who our students are that are not completing their classwork, um, it's students that have barriers to learning within the school day, whether it's um, you know a cultural barrier, whether it's a, a learning barrier, whether it's just a personal or social barrier, regardless of what it is. Um, then what we're ending up doing is uh, punishing a student by forcing them to take work home. Um, or we, if, if we know the students aren't going to take the work home and they aren't going to do it and they're going to come back and then be behind the rest of their, their classmates, then we're, we're causing a gap in the, in the learning that's only going to continue to widen um, if, they're not, if the barriers that are preventing them from getting the classwork done in the first place aren't removed. Um, and then that if the expectation continues to be whatever you don't get done in school needs to be done at home. So that's my first issue with the policy. The other thing that that, that I think or the other thought that I have about the policy is that I really like the idea of not taking any assigned homework home, but I would like to see people's thoughts change about what constitutes learning because often kids and teachers and parents – consider learning as what's done at school. And and homework then as an extension of the school day is considered learning because it's brought back to school and it's looked at and assessed and evaluated and graded by a teacher to determine the extent to which a child learned that concept. And I would like to just maintain that there is a lot of learning that gets done at home through that free play and through what you're doing and the discussions you're having at dinner and through uh, socializing with friends and other members of the family, that that also needs to be considered learning. And the last thing that I have to say about that is if a child is doing something at school that they are interested in, that they have a strong aptitude for, there's high likelihood that they will continue that learning at home on their own because they're interested in it, because they're already good at it. And even though that wouldn't necessarily be assigned homework, we need to consider that as learning as well and and encourage kids to explore their interests, explore their curiosities outside of the classroom and celebrate that as learning toward the mastery of some sort of standard or objective or goal that might be something in place in the classroom.
0: Right. And I really want to echo that equity piece quite a bit more because, you know, and we see it in so-called rich places like, like uh, Minnesota, that many kids really don't have much of a home to go to. Maybe they don't have a home. They they sleep couch to couch in some situations. So how do you do homework if you don't have a home or, or if you need to go to a shelter? How do you do homework if you're left alone and your parents are working multiple shifts and you're on your own, you have to take care of siblings, you have other obligations, et cetera. And there's a, there's a huge equity piece in there that, that I think that no homework policy helps to address uh, quite a bit more. And what I really like about it, uh, in addition to the equity part, is kids are going to learn anyways. And that, it's, that kids are going to do if, with or without homework, kids are always learning. And I really, really appreciate uh, bringing that perspective in.
1: Join us at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time on the first Saturday of every month for a virtual book discussion. Upcoming discussions include Richard Cash's Self-Regulation in the Classroom, Helping Students Learn How to Learn on November 5th, and Peter Gray's Free to Learn on December 1st. Engage in the conversation using hashtag EFReads on Twitter or by following me, Kelly kalorn Moravec, on Facebook and commenting on my live feed. For more information and to see additional upcoming books, go to educationfutures.com reads. So something that both Pekka and Marco talked about were breaking down barriers to learning. And to me, within the schools that we have here in the United States, in particular in Minnesota, where uh, we're using this standards-based approach, um, what what that means to me is that really we need to be focusing on how we are working with the standards because the standards represent the what, right? So we know what we have to teach. And as teachers, we have the flexibility in determining how we're going to do that. And so we need to be thinking about what that looks like for all of our students in the context of breaking down those barriers so that they all have equal opportunity to be able to master the standards in the way that currently our policy says they, they ought to by grade. What do you think about that?
0: I agree. <laughs> Okay. I mean, I mean, there isn't. I mean, we can't. There isn't much to to disagree with on that. I think that one of the key things that that uh, that really stand out, though, is that we are really obsessed with standards. Whereas uh, we're obsessed with Common Core, and you know, the standards aren't there to to really you know support the students as much as it is to support uh, certain publishers um, or certain uh, volume. Uh, purchasers of educational resources, materials.
1: I don't agree. I think that the standards are there. This gets back to that issue of trust that we talked about earlier. I think that there is no sense of trust among people who are policymakers, among people who are administrators in the teachers in being able to deliver instruction and in the students in being able to uh, to produce the the right sorts of things, and so I think that the standards movement is a way for someone to be very explicit and clear in saying this is what students have to know and be able to do, and then pr- the publishers come in and the you know the big uh, idea houses or whatever come in with their their curricula and their materials and things and say oh here's how you can help the students do that, but. I don't think that it's the, the standards were developed so that certain publishing companies could make money. I think they're capitalizing on that. But I think they were developed because there's no sense of trust that students are coming out of schools knowing and are being able to do the things that policymakers believe are the most important.
0: Right. And really feel this through like what we inherited through No Child Left Behind. Uh, Writing standards on a board so students trust the teacher that they're learning something or that the learning is visible. Um,
1: I don't agree with that either. Yeah. As a learner... If there's something that you're meant to know and understand and be able to do at the end of some sort of learning task or some sort of lesson segment, it's important for you to be able to self-assess throughout the entire learning experience how well you do know or understand or able to do whatever it is you're meant to. So I think the idea of being transparent about that is a, is good so that the students aren't just blindly following what their teacher says, but actually have some sort of way to determine for themselves how well they're learning what it is they're supposed to be learning. All right. Well,
0: for me, though, that seems to be an overemphasis on the what to learn rather than rather than the the how. And so the what becomes very visible and it becomes very visible at the beginning and ideally at the end. And you got students that are really worried about formative and then summative assessments. And we've got elementary school kids that are using the terms formative and summative assessments uh, because the what is very visible rather than the how and the learning processes. And how do you pursue your own learning needs? What if you want to delve in deeper? What if you want to sidetrack a little bit and uh, learn something slightly different or, you know, something else or something that you can contextualize to meet your needs a little bit better?
1: But there's no secret that with the standards movement that teachers are expected to facilitate learning around very specific things at very specific ages and grades and levels. And to have those things written and visible for students so that they are able to self-assess as they're learning, I don't think there's a problem with that. The problem comes when the how they're supposed to learn those things becomes standardized as well. Because as you're saying, students need to have the flexibility and the creative freedom to be able to explore something that is of interest or aptitude to them as it falls within whatever that standard might be. Students need to feel as though they can research a little bit deeper, go a little bit further with something they're interested in, or find something that goes on on a different side note um, and and feel like they are able to follow that as long as the end goal still ends up being the same. And the the product can be different too. There are all different kinds of ways to differentiate through the process and the product and even the content to some extent. Um, I don't think that the standards need to be as limiting as what some people think they are. The standards might be very set in stone but how you get students to master those, they don't have to be standardized. And that's the area where they, where teachers and students need to be thinking about how they can flexibly and creatively come up with goals so that students are able to pursue their interests and their passions and their aptitudes within the framework of the standards. If we take that a step further and start thinking about barriers, um, then th- if we're allowing students to follow their passions and their their aptitudes and whatever they're curious about, then automatically that tears down some of the barriers to learning. And then if we're looking at whatever the product maybe is or the outcome is with regard to that standard, there's another area where we can take down some barriers for learning. So, you know, again, I want to emphasize that the standard doesn't have to be Um, as negative as it seems. I don't think the issue is necessarily all students mastering the same standard or same set of standards. I think the issue becomes when all students are expected to master it in the same way. When we're talking about the idea of breaking down barriers within this standards-based era, really where we need to be doing that is within the how, because we already know the what.
0: I think this connects very well with what Finland is starting this year in their curricula when they're doing a phenomenon-based approach. Here's what Pekka had to say about it.
3: There's, there's a new curriculum, and, and it's called, uh, well, I think it has many names, but one of the most popular is phenomenon-based uh, approach, phenomenon-based curriculum, which means that subjects are not in center, but learning is in, in center. And uh, subjects as such are not taught or learned, but as real and as authentic phenomena as possible, which are real things, they are basics of learning and uh, all activity, also those contents included in subjects are are, are combined and connected uh, to those, those phenomena. So so, let let's take an example. the the phenomena phenomenon can, for instance, be in an architecture, and and then the, all math, reading, writing, biology, geography, history, uh, whatever subjects are combined to this big phenomenon. Uh, we are now studying architecture, and. Uh, then the the phenomenal architecture can uh, be divided into smaller problems. What kind of styles of architecture, what kind of buildings, and uh, what kind of uh, uh, house building and construction activities, what kind of history of uh, uh, architecture includes, and all all possible things. Smaller problems, and then they can be even divided then then projects to to examine together learners and teachers. For instance, go to see some 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 famous buildings and and look them around and, and maybe maybe make some research about about the, the building, how is it built and, and and who is the architecture what is the style and so on. So in principle, uh, uh, yeah, and, and in practice, uh, teachers together um, at the school and then, and then also together with, with learners define, of course, teachers first define the, the, at least the idea of the phenomenon via which the learning takes place. But then when, when there are some phenomena or those main phenomena for, for year basis or, or season basis, term basis, uh, uh, then they are, they are examined and defined in more detailed ways uh, together with learners.
1: So we had an interesting conversation the other day with a parent of a school-aged child in our community, and she was talking about the school where her son goes. And for every project, uh, a, an, a teacher advisor sits down with the students individually and they look at um, all of the standards that are important to be covered in the next learning segment. And then together they develop goals and they develop a project around the standards and how to meet all of the standards together. And again, when we're thinking about the obligations that we have under this standards-based movement, this seems to be a good way to kind of take what Finland is doing in this idea of the phenomenon-based approach or question-based learning approach, um, and putting it together within the confines of what we have with the standards movement in the United States to allow students to still pursue their interests and aptitudes um, while producing something that is vastly different from their classmates.
0: Right. And one of the other things that I like about Finland's approach is that they're approaching phenomena inside and outside the classroom as well. So pieces are integrated around central themes, and I really like the examples that Pekka brought up, uh, like with architecture, and really drilling down to to really individual um, items or units or or phenomena, experiences, elements that that really emerge out of there. So I really do like that approach very much.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So on a personal update, you may hear a cat uh, purring and clawing around in the background. That is our uh, pet Frank, and uh, he is delighted that we're podcasting because we are in a quiet room, uh, apart from our new puppy, Selma, uh, who may be joining our podcast a bit later as background noise. This episode of the Education Futures podcast is made possible through the support of our wonderful listeners, and especially the folks who write to us those folks who provide feedback, insights, and ideas for future episodes. You can learn more about supporting this podcast by visiting our page at educationfutures.com slash podcast.
1: We'd like to thank everyone who has already sent us emails about the show. A special shout out to Peter Bishop from teachthefuture.org who sent us this message. Thank you for doing these podcasts. In the meantime, I'd like to interest you in my project, introducing futures thinking into the secondary and college curricula under the auspices of teach the future www.teachthefuture.org it's like what you do education futures except that it's futures in education
0: and it's a great resource and peter bishop uh, has been doing fantastic work in the in the houston area and we highly encourage you to check out that resource teach the if you'd like to listen to more you should visit the Education Futures podcast Patreon page. By chipping in with a monthly donation, you'll get access to the complete interviews we've recorded, including the interesting bits that did not make the final cut in this program. As more media become available, we will post them online as well. Go to educationfutures.com podcast and click on support to learn more. If you'd like to chat with us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at edfutures and on Facebook at Education Futures. You can learn more about this series at educationfutures.com slash podcast.
1: Keeping conversations about the future of education going depends on you. We would love for you to share your stories, thoughts, opinions, and ideas for use in upcoming podcasts please email john at educationfutures.com or kelly at educationfutures.com and visit us at www.educationfutures.com to engage in the discussion on evolving learning and the future of education. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at Kelly Kalorn.
0: And I'm at Moravec. Thank you. And we look forward to continuing the conversation with you in our upcoming podcasts. Thanks for listening.